2020 is the year that never was, but also the year that had it all. It was a year chocked full of canceled plans and sheltering at home due to the global pandemic. And it was also a year of turmoil that included fires, floods, protests, murder hornets, and the most contentious presidential election of our lifetime. With so much unrest and concern about the future, it's easy to overlook the good that's happened in the world this past year. I'm J.R. Jameson. And I'm Kelsey Timmerman. Today on The Facing Project, we'll take a look back at 2020 and share our favorite stories and moments from the show. The other day I was chatting virtually with a friend and she asked me what I missed most about my pre-pandemic life. And I said, driving. And the thing is, I can't believe I even said that because I've complained on the regular for the past 15 years about my three hour a day commute. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you always talk about having road rage or if you're not driving, you get uh, car sick. So I'm really surprised to hear you say that. I know, but, you know, so the thing is, it's not so much that I miss driving. I guess it's more about having a destination. And I I realized that the other day when I was driving around town, because I still do that about once a week just to make sure that the battery and my engine stays active and all these things I didn't even know you needed to do for a car. Until do, this do you, is, that like, is that mechanically sound? <laughs> like, I, I'm not, I don't know if I trust you. I don't know. I need, Corey, I Corey, Corey tells me all the time, you, can, you need to make sure you go drive your car so that it stays in good, healthy condition. So I don't know. I just, I just listen and I just hop in and I drive around. But the thing is, as I've been driving around, I longingly look out the window and some of my past haunts and memories that we've made around this town. And then I just turn around and I come right back home. And it's sad. I know it is. And I really miss the in-person human interaction. And I do fear so much that the sheltering in place for the past nine months will make me permanently socially awkward. Not that I wasn't already socially awkward enough, but I feel like... I mean, at this point, my dog is my best friend, and I don't even mean that figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I miss touching people. Ooh, okay. <laughs> wait, wait. Uh, <laughs> I should be more specific. Like, I miss hugging, like, friends and family appropriately, JR. Yeah. Um, I mean, this spring when the pandemic first hit, I went months without hugging my mom. And when we opened our bubble this summer to include her— and I finally hugged her. And it wasn't like I even knew I missed, like, hugging my mom. Yeah. But when I did, I got teary-eyed. And I missed bumping into people and shaking their hands, catching up and making plans. And, like, it had been too long, so let's get together for lunch or whatever. And, yeah. Well, now for sure it has been too long. So a little side note, uh, JR, uh, do you remember that one time we hugged? Um. Yes. I do. You mean the one time that you forced me to hug you? This sounds, this sounds like on a street corner under only the lights of street lamps, <laughs> which I know that makes it sound even stranger. But yes, I have tried to block that awkward moment from my mind, and I think you told me afterward that hugging me was like hugging a fish. Uh, yeah, never, <laughs> never again. So for some context, we had just completed the Facing Autism Project. It, especially for me, it was a emotional evening. It was, um, you know, the first facing project that we put together, like just, you know, the, the, two, the two of us and we organized in our own community. It was a really powerful moment. We had like an after party and then I was saying goodbye and I'm like, that was a really cool moment. 
I'm going to give JR a hug. And then it was complete, like, dead fish. Um, <laughs> so anyhow, uh, this episode is a hug for all those who shared stories and for all those who listened. And by hug, I mean a Kelsey hug and not a JR hug. Hey, now, I don't think that is totally fair. Worst hugger ever. <laughs> But when I think about our show and the stories we've shared and the people we've met over this past year, even those we've only met virtually, I'm reminded of the human condition that still connects us all. And that gives me hope. And that's as good of a hug as any for me. So when I look back at our past year, one of my favorite moments is when we sat down with Will Grinstead. Will is a pastor and he served as a storyteller in a facing LGBTQ project. And in that story, he shared how he once held anti-LGBTQ views, but that changed after he had to stand in for a chaplain and give last rites to a dying woman whose wife sat at her bedside. The interaction Will had with this woman in the final moments of her wife's life made him begin to question what he was taught about relationships and marriage. He is now an affirming pastor and we invited him on the show for a chat and that was included in episode six of season two, Faith, Identity, and Life-Changing Chance Encounters. We want to welcome the storyteller, Will Grinstead, to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Will. Uh, so in some ways, this story is about a moment you had an identity crisis. And I don't know how long ago this exactly was, but are you still, is there still an ongoing identity crisis or you feel good where you're at? Uh, so this happened back in, uh, let's see, 2014, uh, when I was doing my clinical training for uh, hospital chaplaincy through a program called clinical pastoral education. And I, I guess, uh, the answer to both of your questions is yes. Um, yes, uh, still an identity crisis. Um, although, um, I, I guess I've come to reframe that as that that's kind of how life is and that's, that's okay. Uh, every day presents us with opportunities to grow and to change and, um, I think that's what life is supposed to be. So the journey since then has become, has been uh, being okay with that ongoing kind of unfolding of identity that um, there's there's something new to discover about ourselves every single day. So there's kind of a life-changing moment, life-changing experience. If you hadn't had it, do you think you would have been on a different path or do you think you would have eventually had it? Oh boy, that's that's a tough philosophical question. Um how about this? I, th I think that I needed to have it. Th there was already this, uh, this stirring or this wondering in me about, okay, these are the things I heard about LGBTQ people uh, growing up, but I, I knew that that didn't resonate with me. Um, but at, at the same time, I didn't really know how to practice ministry, how to, how to serve that population um, authentically. You know, it was this, this kind of fumbling through. I didn't have a lot of good examples to look at. Um, so, yeah, I, I needed this to happen. I do think um, that eventually I would have found my way to, to this kind of ministry. And the fact that it happened uh, when it did was, was really great. Um, so chaplains go through clinicals, um, kind of similar to the way nurses go through clinicals, because you can't learn everything you need to know about nursing through a book. You really have to get out there and practice it and get your hands dirty. Um, and so I had not just this experience that was transformative for me, uh, but also a great um, supervisor and peer group to help me kind of process through this and, and what was this going to look like for my ministry going forward and um, how was I going to articulate um, who I am and, and why I do what I do in an authentic way. What kind of lessons were you being preached at, like growing up in, the, in that tradition? 
And how could you, I was wondering, like, how could you like sit there sometimes and yeah. what I yeah. maybe would perceive now as like messages of like, here's why you should kind of hate a group of people or not like or accept yeah. a group of people. Yeah, yeah I, I feel this like, um, I don't know, like a pressure in my chest, even kind of trying to think back to that time and and talk about some of this. But um, but yeah, it was, um, so I, I grew up in a, a very, an independent fundamentalist Baptist church. Um, the message about uh, LGBTQ folks or really just gay people was really all the, the articulate, articulate language that you would use was that uh, those folks are flawed, they're mentally ill, um, definitely um, going to hell. I mean, it just, language that it's hard for me to even repeat now, but that was very much the, the kind of language that I grew up in. Um, and I think when we're kids or adolescents, you know, you, you take that at face value, you know, and this was a day before the internet, you know, where you couldn't just look this stuff up. Um, you know, you had limited sources of information. I grew up um, not only in a conservative church environment, but the school I attended was also uh, associated with the church and very conservative, so kind of a very insular culture. Um, but it, it's interesting to me, kind of thinking back, really as soon as I started stepping out of that, I started kind of questioning all of these different boundary lines that I'd been given as absolute and ask, asking hard questions of them. Mm -hmm. Knowing what you know now and understanding how LGBTQ people have been pained or harmed by the church, what commits you to being a pastor still? Yeah, uh, yeah. I know in radio it's kind of frowned upon to have uh, that dead airspace, but I, I just wonder if we could hold those words, um, LGBT, LGBTQ people pained by the church in silence for a minute. Uh, because pain is a really is a really rich word. You know, we use that word pain to mean you know I'm I'm I poked myself in the arm with a pencil and a headache and uh, kidney stones and emotional and spiritual pain as well. Um, I think the kind of pain that I hear about from LGBTQ folks is pain that's inflicted upon someone, and so uh, it's not just pain that happens to come have come about you know through ordinary daily living, that's difficult enough for any of us as it is, but it's, um, it's spiritual abuse that's been given to these people uh, about who they are at the most fundamental level. Um, and I, my own personal belief is that um, clergy, church folks have, have a lot of answering to do for the messages that we have supported and not opposed over the years. Um, so what keeps me committed to being a pastor? Um, the work of healing that and uh, knowing that that work is not going to happen in a month or a year. It's, it's going to happen probably over the span of my lifetime and, and others too, to where we really get back to um, a place where we can preach true affirmation of people's uh, deepest identity. Mm -hmm. Because so many people in the LGBTQ community have been pained like mm -hmm. we just discussed they're afraid of the church and afraid of clergy in some ways um mm. because of this and i'm speaking from growing up southern baptist and, yes. and so we connected yeah. a bit about this um there's this fear of being your authentic self in front of people who identify as people of faith right so 
what can LGBTQ people do? I mean, what's this, this piece of, um, how do you, how do you, how do you reach, how do you reach us? Um, how do you reassure us that, uh, you're not here to do harm or change us, that you really are here to affirm us? Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's a few kind of a few important points in what you said. Um, the first thing I would say to, you know, my clergy colleagues is, um, stop talking and start listening. Mm-hmm. Um, no, nobody's interested in, in our words about that anymore. That that's been, that's done. That's over with. Um, we, we don't need, I, I don't think we don't need clergy to pretend as though, um, you know, we're counseling psychologists or biologists or other, fo- other kinds mm-hmm. of disciplines. We need people that are skilled at soul care. We need people that are, um, skilled at working at the deepest level of who people are. And the way you do that is by listening to people. It's, it's just a radical idea that we're going to listen mm-hmm. to people's stories as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, yeah, even the way you set up the question about the, the fear of being our authentic self in front of people of faith, it just, oh, it just hurts to hear that. But I, mm-hmm. I know that must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be the first thing I'd tell uh, my clergy colleagues is to uh, stop talking and to start listening. And I would also say, um, just because you want to have an open and affirming church and you say that you're open and affirming, doesn't make it so, <laughs> right? You, you need to have a, a longer uh, kind of intentional conversation and, and work with some groups to make sure that what you're offering and what you, th- what you think you're offering is actually what you're communicating because people, you know, make these um, quick assessments of our, our spaces and our, our presence as clergy or as um, uh, lay folks in churches um, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's important to get those things right if you really want to um, invite people into that space. What do you say to colleagues, perhaps maybe uh, folks who you went through school with, or perhaps it's... Uh, people you know from, and I hate to use this word past life, but um, in your past experiences of what you used to believe, I'm sure you still hear people say, but, but Uh, uh the scripture says this, and we can't get beyond that. How do you even have conversations? Like what's one way um, we can't change minds overnight, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that just isn't possible. We know that's not true, but there is a chipping away process that can happen. um, And there are, times when chance encounters, mm-hmm. right, or chance conversations can alter how you move forward. How do you begin conversations when people start with, but scripture says? Yeah. Yeah, well, I could uh, kind of geek out on that question for a little while, but mm-hmm. I think more than we have time for. But um, I, I think you have to look people in the eyes and ask, is this a, I can he- say, I, I can hear that this is a belief that's very important to you. Is this something you're willing to study? Is this something you're willing to look at? And you have to trust that people are giving you an honest answer when they say yes. And if so, I'll, I'll talk with them about that. Honestly, a lot of people are not uh, willing to look at that. You know, for a, it says something about their identity. Uh, it, it would mean something culturally for them to step out of, uh, to be out of step with their church or their denomination. Um, all these other things are placed at, people think they're placing at risk um, by questioning this one belief for some reason that I, it's, it's hard for me to look back and understand that. Um, and yet I know that there was a time for me when this was, a 
this was a belief that I had, at least at some level, um, about people's identity. Um, so as hard as it may be, that the way that we take steps forward uh, is by taking a step toward with compassion. Even the people that are, that are really easy to, to kind of hold at arm's length. Um, as, so as a pastor, I trust that when I do, do that towards someone who has a belief that's different than mine, that there's something intrinsically good in their in their spirit that will re- that can recognize that and take a step towards me as well. Do you ever encounter in those experiences similar to the experience you share in the story where you feel like people are holding back a little on how much they want to share and how do you how do you get them to share more in that situation or do you just let it yeah. go where it may go? Yeah, well uh, I think every Everyone is a little bit different and unique. Um, I, I I try to remember that um, you know bringing openness uh, creates the space for some of that openness, and people have to own some of that themselves. But uh, when I go in and present a kind of a very open attitude of ministry, it it can it leaves space for other people to fill that out how they want, kind of like a paint by numbers or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, people fill that space in, in all kinds of different ways. And, and that's, that's all right with me. Will Grinstead, uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. This was really wonderful. You said to love the lost, so I'm loving you now. You said speak the truth, I'm calling you. Why don't you live the words that you put in my mouth? Be a love of a call and justice rolls out. As someone who's been pained by the church, I found our conversation with Will to be healing, and it was a reminder that we must forgive ourselves and others for past transgressions. For me, it was a touching and unscripted moment that I won't forget. Yeah, I won't forget that either. It's like we weren't in the studio. The mics faded away, and it was just us chatting with Will. And shortly after that episode, the studio actually did fade away. Mm -hmm. Our producer, Sean, said it was because of COVID, but I think it was because of that time. Maybe a couple times that we snuck donuts into the studio. Or spilled coffee. <laughs> it was JR. Or, or water. <laughs> like the time when uh, I was interviewing James Fallows, and that was cut, but I spilled an entire glass of water in the middle of the interview. And uh, well, so, yeah. yeah. Well, regardless, there was no more face to face for the facing project, and that included uh, Dayton's facing gun violence project. So, that project was a definite highlight for me. The Dayton community had been through so much a tornado a clan rally, and then a mass shooting. But the stories they shared, they were filled with so much strength and love and forgiveness and healing, especially the story of Jason Phillips, the bouncer at the club where the shooting took place. This story is from episode 11 of season two, A Shooting in the Heartland. A listener warning here, Jason's story describes a violent shooting in a tragic aftermath. I ran the door at Ned Pepper's for a long time. I heard four shots come from across the street. I've lived in the city long enough to be able to kind of pinpoint where shots are coming from. I just expected to see some guys running away because it went pow, 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 real quick. And I thought it was just some inner city beef and people were gonna scatter and it'd be over. 
There was a brief lull after those first four shots, and then it started again. It was intentional. It was targeted. I could tell the shots were being thought out. I thought to myself, this is not okay. I realized it wasn't just a handgun, it was a much more powerful gun. I started looking for muzzle flash. But as I started looking, all hell was breaking loose and people were running past me. I realized at that point I needed to kind of protect myself. I realized that I could not do anything to neutralize whoever was shooting because I couldn't locate them. The shots were going off. They kept going off. One of the other bouncers said, get inside, get inside. I wear a vest when I'm out of my bike. As I run in, my vest catches the door handle and it jerks me to a stop and I have to back up, bullets going past. I have to unhook myself. I look directly ahead of me and it's just a pile of human beings. The whole dance floor, about two thirds of the way back was a wall of people trying to climb over each other. I look to the right where you go up to the DJ booth or go downstairs. People had crowded in there blocking the stairs both directions, up and down. I look to the bar. There's no way I actually can get down behind the bar. Gunshots are going off. There's nowhere to go. I got down behind the trash can and put my back up against it. The only thing blocking me was a Rubbermaid trash can. I just made myself as small as possible. I remember thinking, pull your legs in, get small, get small. I got small, and I remember covering my head like in a tornado drill in school, and I would open my eyes every once in a while. There was a car, headlights shining in, and maybe it was the street light. I don't know. It was a bright light shining into that patio wall that was open. And I remember dust, dust rolling past me, illuminated by the light. Whether it was gun smoke or what, I just remember all this dust going past me. The only thing I can think of was my eldest daughter just turned 11. She's going to remember me. My middle daughter had just turned three. She may have some vague memories of me. But my youngest was a year and a half and there's no way she's going to remember me. And I kept thinking, there's no way that Haley is going to remember her dad. I was close enough that I could hear the bullets crack as they went by. It was like a miniature sonic boom. A sound I never want to hear again. Then all of a sudden, the shooting was done. I don't know how I figured out it was certainly over and safe to stand up. But you can see on one of the videos they played on the news, me standing up next to the trash can. I kept checking myself, feeling myself. Where are the bullet holes? I stood up, and there was that guy. Connor Betts. Dead, basically, four feet away from me. A bullet was lodged in the floor directly next to my leg. Another went through the door directly where I was prior to running inside. There's a hole through what would have been me, which was lodged in the other door. I watched his body start to change color. Very quickly, when a human dies, the color leaves the body. I sat there looking at this guy, and his chubby face was kind of pointed at me. I didn't see some animal, some monster. I saw somebody's child. Period. Somebody's kid just got killed. He was somebody's pride and joy. 
I guess I was totally in shock. I shut down. Everyone else is crying and screaming. And I'm like, this is crazy, but calm down. Down the sidewalk, people were laid out. Some had been shot. Some hadn't. Some were alive. Some were dead. It's so fuzzy and so clear all at the same time. It all comes out in the news several days later. They had so many red flags that this kid was disturbed. The kid had a hit list. The kid had this, 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 this. People knew this kid was dangerous. They never got him the mental health help that he needed. The whole system failed this kid. On the morning of August 4th, I'm sitting on the couch with my wife and two youngest daughters, and I'm crying, and I finally kind of dry up a little bit. I look over, and my one-and-a-half-year-old has a balloon, and it pops up out of her hands into the air. She's reaching in the air for it and giggling and smiling so big. She's so happy with a simplistic thing like a balloon. So pure. I lost it. I broke down harder than I've probably ever broken down in my life. I told my wife, you know, his parents used to watch him do that. Connor Betts's parents used to watch him do that. We're so thankful for the Dayton International Peace Museum for running that project and to Mayor Nan Whaley, who made time to support the project even during a pandemic. One of my other favorite moments from this season have been the listener call-ins. We never know what they are going to say or where they're coming from, and one listener told us to keep moving and to never give up. This is Jack. I'm 82 years old. I live in St. Mary's, Ohio, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from Muncie, Indiana. And uh, frequently during this covid I traveled to Muncie to visit with my daughter just to break up the monotony of staring at these poor walls. Uh, I had to give anybody any advice. As I said, I'm 82. As you reach my age, stay active. Stay as active as you possibly can because I've learned over the years that people that stop decide they're just going to sit and read and watch television die within about a year. So let's not have that happen. My activity is primarily centered around music. I'm a longtime musician, and I play uh, string bass in a lot of concert bands and jazz bands. So that's it. Stay active, keep busy, stay safe, and stay away from the virus. Thank you. What Jay didn't mention that we've since learned from his daughter is that he was in the control room in Houston during Apollo 13. Yes, you heard that right. Jay worked for NASA making sure their Sperry Univac computers didn't fail. He said to his daughter, that day sure didn't go as planned. Wherever you find yourself at this moment, we know it's hard not to look back at 2020 and think about all that we lost. But we hope you are able to find something from this year that will keep you going. And to that, here's to 2021. We'll be back then with all new episodes of The Facing Project. We want to thank Sinclair Community College's Music Theater and Dance Department for recruiting and recording the voice actors for the Dayton Gun Violence Stories. 
Gina Neuer and Kimberly Vorce provided direction. Daniel Brunk provided sound. Chris Hahn played Jason Phillips, with story by Whitney Bell and Jason Phillips. A clip of Dan Dietrich's song, Hymn for the 81%, was heard in this episode and was used with permission. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm-hmm.